Welcome to the Tech Data World podcast, the independent voice in aerospace, defense, and space technical information, covering all the news, reviews, gossip, opinion, software, standards, and specifications in the information production and deployment field. Yo, hello everyone and welcome to uh, this week's podcast and um, those of you who are joining us on YouTube and watching the recording of the podcast, uh, welcome. Those of you who are just listening either via your favourite podcasting piece of software, also welcome. So this is just me doing a very short introduction to this week's podcast because I've been talking a long time now about I wanted to do some interviews with some of the leading experts in the market and kind of the stuff that they uh, see as the challenges of our market and kind of the stuff that's going on that we need to be aware of. So this week I am interviewing a young man called Peter Studdard from Aspire Consulting and um, we talk about some of the challenges around supportability so please do enjoy this it's about an hour and 10 minutes long so uh, make sure you've got yourself a coffee and um, do enjoy this podcast so peter thank you for um being our guest on our first tdw podcast uh, i appreciate it and being the guinea pig for something that i hope will be a uh, tremendous success i know it's something that we've talked about a lot over the last um probably two years where we've oh, been least, yeah. working together on on doing a podcast. Now, I don't know why I went all northern then when I said podcast. Did you hear that? So the um, now for those that are listening to the podcast, uh, if you've never met Peter, you don't know who Peter is. Peter's actually been running a uh, second stream to TDW Live, our conference, which is another thing that we were talking about for a long time. How do we bring in the wider supportability aspects to the conference which has grown year on year now i think this year is our ninth year of running the conference so it's doing it is, pretty yeah. well mm. and um so i thought what we would do is have a have a podcast with uh, with peter and talk about support engineering through the eyes of an expert and who's been doing it since i don't know how long well aspire since 96 and um as me i guess i left the army in 1990 so, um, so, so, uh, I started quite, in so I was just going into my military career <laughs> at the time. So yeah. um, I guess maybe spend a couple of minutes just giving everybody your background. What brought you into support engineering? Why you're so passionate about it? And then maybe we'll talk a little bit about TD, TDW Live and then some of the challenges around support engineering as you see it. Mm, so, yeah. So let's start with who you are, what's your background, where you're from and why Aspire? Uh, right, so where does it start? Um, my background, X-Remi, X-Remi Aviation, um, same as Mike as it happens. Yep. And um, But I served in the Remi for 15 years as an avionics tech, um, but I served with... And we um, won't hold that against you. Yeah, no, people do. But, um, <laughs> what you find, I found, is that mechanical engineers tend to be good at certain types of things in this sort of business, and uh, electronics people tend, it's not a drone rule, but tend to sort of go into the anal analytical type stuff. Yeah, you, well, you you're know? very analytical anyway, um, I've, I've so, known that about you. And that kind of that kind of fits. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I, I served with 3Commando um, for a while, uh, so I like to be able to say, basically, I was in the army, so land, I was uh, on airplanes, so I've done air. And I there was three three commandos so on maritime, so I've got I've got all three. So you're a proper soldier. So, yeah, yeah. So, so when people ask me, were you in the army? I say, well, I was in the Remi. 
Mm-hmm. You know, so um, oh no, I don't, I don't denigrate <laughs> it. Um, Cold War warrior, but uh, it's still the real army. Yeah, yeah. So, <coughs> and why Aspire, and where did Aspire come from? Well, um, through accidents, really, because you leave the army, you've got to find a job. Um, yep. I, I went to work for one of the major defence contractors um, and uh, got into ILS. As it happened, I mean, f- strangely, my very last task before I left the army, I just escaped from Germany. Um, uh, back to the UK just to, in time to get out of the army. Yep. Uh, thanks to Nick Nodson, who some of you all know. Yeah. Who Nick, was my, we didn't uh, even know Nick commanding well. officer back then. Um, and uh, I, I was given a task to look at um, what would the the, the workshop seventy uh, aircraft workshop look like? Uh, what would it require to support attack helicopter? Mm-hmm. Um, so that was my last task, and it was all done basically by reading requirements documents and you know writing on bits of paper and whiteboards, and it was all made up. But it was kind of you all know, made up. Well, yeah. well, it was all based on wet finger, you know, because you go, well, yeah. well, it's going to have a radar system on, you know, yeah. which we hadn't really had on um, uh, army aircraft before, uh-huh. army uh, helicopters anyway, you know, apart from IFF or something like that. So you have to have radar techs all of a sudden with you, you know, and, and so on. So it was all based on, it was all logical, but, um, but you know, we, we were guessing how many people we need and how much, how much, how much resources we would require. Um, so that was my final task. And then I left the army. Obviously, you need a job. So I was offered a job by a major defence contractor and I took that job. Um, and it turned out to be working in ILS. It was actually for BA Systems down okay. at the uh, Salisbury site, part of the Wharton. Salisbury's up by Wharton, yeah. yeah so, yeah, um, I did some work at Wharton a long, long time ago now. But, um, um, yeah, Salisbury, from a tech pub's perspective, I remember back then, I think they used to do the IPCs and, and the illustrated parts stuff over there. Yeah, I think um, so. Yeah. I mean, it's a long time ago now, as you say. Uh, yeah, and I've slept several times too. since then, so it's uh, it's uh, faded away a bit. Um, but anyway, we ended up. They were doing ILS on one of the first programs, if not. So, the so first just program. so just for people maybe more in my domain that don't necessarily understand what ILS is, how would you encapsulate it in a couple of statements? Uh, what is it? Um, it's pretty straightforward at the high level. Um, integrated logistic support. The idea you can look at it as two things really. One is you've got to look at the totality of the support required to keep a piece of equipment operating. So the, the REMA used to use the phrase to keep fit equipment in the hand of the user at all times. Mm-hmm. Well, that's it. That's the point of it. Um, keep keep fit equipment in the hands of the user. Uh, now, that requires you've got to look at everything. So you've got to look at tech pubs, you look at training, you've got to look at spare parts, how those spares are delivered, how the training is updated, etc. for 20, 30 years of the life of the equipment. And that's got to be done in a coherent way. And anyone who's been in the services will know that, you know, you pick up a technical manual sometimes and you walk up to the bit of kit that it's describing and it ain't the same. Yep. You know, or it tells you to do a piece of test kit and the bit of test kit in the stores is not the same. Or the training you get doesn't really, you know, you get overtrained very often. We certainly did in the really. Um, uh, and you get undertrained in other areas. So the idea is to make sure that everything is coherent and everything is taken into account. Um, and also to take into account the operational environment you know we're not training people to fix commercial airliners we're talking about people who are fixing airplanes and tanks and ships theoretically in a combat zone yep that's what it's about so it has to work in a combat zone um or when you're dealing with insurgents or when you're dealing with a natural disaster it all has to work in all those different environments and that's quite challenging to do that and to do that in an optimal way uh, so you get the greatest possible capability for the 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 minimum possible cost because at the end Mm -hmm. of the day there's not infinite funds around so, so that's the idea. That's the output of ILS. Is that is that coherent, optimized, total support system? If you use the word phrasing we use, but of course the ne- the other part of it is then you've got to generate that product. So there's a whole raft of different disciplines involved in delivering all that stuff. 
And typically, they're, they're disparate. They're all done separately. So the guys who do training are in a separate, very often a separate site <laughs> to the guys doing technical publications, for example. Uh, that's not right because you're using the same information, the same data, and so on. So the idea is, is to streamline the process, take out duplication, take out nugatory effort, and to do it, first of all, in the most cost-effective way. So the process is cost-effective, but also, of course, that the that if you don't have a cost-effective and optimal process, you'll not produce a cost-effective and optimal output. You can't, um, almost by definition. So you, you've you actually got to look at the way in which you identify support requirements and do that in a... In a repeating myself, in an optimal manner, mm -hmm. uh, an optimal and cost-effective manner. So that's really what ILS, real ILS. So really from, from a from a tech pub's <coughs> perspective, we are a small cog in a very large gearbox, if you like, in, in, in making this it's, it's, all yeah. work. So, so Aspire, mm -hmm. you started Aspire to focus on this discipline. Yeah. And um, I guess you've been lucky enough. I know we can't talk specifically about platforms and projects. We shouldn't. Um, but I know that you've supported some very exciting and interesting projects. Mm -hmm. And um, so I guess support engineering is a hot topic. It's something that we get asked about a lot when we're talking about tech pubs. So where do we fit? Where should we be getting our information from that we put into our technical publications? And you know, there's there's lots of areas that we can take content and repurpose it and reuse it and link to within our tech pubs. And we do that um, as part of our day-to-day -day, uh, working. So, which is why I said to you that I think we need a support track at TDW mm. Live. And I think we said this about two years ago. And I know that it's a track that we're trying to grow. Yeah. Um, and um, so, so what do you think... In terms of a theme this year for TDW Live, from from tech pubs, what I've what I want to do, and I, I know that I've released some videos on this already, is we're taking an old Morris eleven hundred technical manual, mm -hmm. going to convert it through to XML. Notice I'm not mentioning any standards or specifications at this state, right. Right. and um, and we're talking about how we can then do some sexy stuff with it. How can we then make it? into intelligent content um, and then have a look at what can we do to take it to the next generation, i.e. what is AR, AI, and how is this all going to affect the way that we write our content and uh, create our content. In fact, recently I was asked by a major aerospace company, we really need to get into AR and we need to get into AI. So, um, so that's where I'm going with the technical publications track this year and that's what I want to achieve and we've had quite a lot of interest in that what do you see from the ILS side from the supportability side well I see something which kind of complements that um, and interestingly of course we'll talk about it in detail once we turn the cameras off yeah um, but uh, basically it ties in with with the introduction I just made and I explained what ILS was our, our aim is to say look what's the end game yeah. Um, where, what, what is the idea at the end of the game um, and the argument is is for example taking tech docs um, the end game is not tech docs. Mm -hmm. um, it's not even a system of delivering tech docs and updating tech docs for 20 years. It's bigger than that. It's actually, ultimately, it's a, it's a defense operational capability. Yep. And then you, you start at that point, um, and that's basically to go and fight wars and do nasty things to, to the Queen's enemies, um, and then work backwards. And um, the argument is, is stop thinking about disciplines. Don't talk about tech docs. Uh, Think, think actually, what do you need to actually enable, um, for example, the maintainer to do in the field? Because we know, you know, we're going to put kits in the field, it's going to fail. It's going to get damaged. Um, 
and we need to react to that. So how do we react to it? Well, one of the things we're going to have to do, we're stepping backwards all the time now from the end game, one of the end things we're going to have to fix it. So you need someone to do the fixing. So how do you enable the person to do the fixing? Now, again, I'm very carefully not saying training or tech docs at the minute, yep. but you need to enable that guy to do something. And keep stepping backwards from that and, and work logically. And you said actually quite interesting. I smiled when you said we're just a cog in a big gearbox because actually in my notes I, I wrote preparing for our next conversation, I've actually got this thing about a, a cog in a wheel, yeah. a cog, a cog, you know, a, a small cog in a big machine. Um, uh, and you know the reality is it's a really good analogy <clears throat> because you wouldn't if you were designing a gearbox, you wouldn't say to one guy, "I want you to design that gear now, disappear off onto." you know, the site three miles down the road and design that gear for me. And the next guy and, do the next gear. And, and, and somebody else in a different room. I want you to do gear. the casing. <laughs> I want, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You just, it's just too stupid to contemplate. But it's exactly what we do in the world of support. We put people into separate threads. Um, and that's not the right answer. And what you, something else you said there I'll pick up on. You said, well, you take, you take um, information you've generated, content, and you repurpose it. Now, I get that. But actually, when you think about it, that's, there's something gone wrong if you're doing that. Because what you need to do is, is not produce a tech pub and then repurpose it. You need to step back to before it became a tech pub and then say, right, where is this information going? Because it's going to have several roles. So it's you're, 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 you're branching, if you like, into different areas in the, at the wrong point in time. Mm-hmm. You're too late in the process. So we, we need to think about that um, and think about the shared information between tech pubs, training, and all the other things that you do as well. Because if you write a tech pub, you've got to say you need stuff to do the job. You need a list of stuff. Well, someone's got to work out what that stuff is. Yeah. And it's got to be optimal. Spares, you've got to optimize spares. So Consumables, all this kind of everything. stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's all got to feed into that. Um, and, of course, you've also got to look at the bigger picture. You mustn't just look at your bit of kit because that's not the point. You know, we don't have a support system for Eurofighter. You know, we have a support system which has got Eurofighter-specific bits but most of it is generic for the Royal Air Force, in fact, for air. Um, and it's the same with nearly every... And uh, even and smaller bits of kit, it's even more so. So if you're talking about land systems in particular, you know, you have even less and less specialised support for land system pieces of equipment. So you've got to look at the bigger picture and say, actually, what's this about? And a really good um, example is Stripe Brigade. You know, where everyone's talking about Stripe Brigade because it falls into the really quite challenging... Take a brigade and go 2,000 kilometres into enemy territory. And while you're doing that, you've got to support it. You've got to keep that kit rolling. So how are you going to do that? You know, How does that affect your training? How does that affect your tech pubs? How does that affect you where you, you manage your vehicle casualties and your electronics casualties uh, and so on and so forth? So really our idea is, is to say, look, guys, if you're going to make this work, start at the end and work backwards. And so, for example, one of the things I'm going to do... Um, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll give away the secrets if you like before we do it. One of the things I'm thinking of saying, for example, is um, if you've done the spares analysis and you've worked out how many spares you require, the ranging and scaling, if you haven't taken into account enemy action, you're wasting your time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because enemy action is going to, first of all, cause damage. Um, have you thought about damage as opposed to failures? Just failures? The answer is usually no, by the way. Um, and have you thought about uh, the difficulties actually getting those spares forward? and getting those repairable items back um, if you're actually sending them around a repair loop. Um, have you taken that into account when you did your sparing analysis? If you haven't, yeah. you've wasted your time. It's almost like, I call it a what-if analysis. So what if we lost five pieces of kit? And that's what, the, what if we lost ten soldiers? Yeah. Um, what if we lost a satellite? Yep, and again, you I, think, know. I think that's part of it. Yes, and the satellite's a key one as well. You know, um, we, we've... 
we've got into the habit, and I, I addressed this on the last seminar as well, of course, you remember, but um, we've got into the habit of thinking about the recent, the last war. You know, yep. we're, we're fighting the last war. Uh, if we've got peer-to-peer, and everyone's talking about peer-to-peer warfare now uh, as the, the, the potential new threat, if you're fighting the Russians, your comms have been turned off. These guys have got shells they fire from artillery which are designed to interrupt your comms. They land on the ground and they sit there and interrupt your comms. That's that's you know that that's the sort of technology they're using, despite all the big and other the normal electronic warfare stuff. So you might not have any comms. You and, might and, have a and let me give you a real life example of that. Claire and I were in New York recently, and we were in the middle of that blackout zone. I don't know if you saw it on the news. Um, um, Pass me by that one. New York <clears throat> basically had a big blackout, and I've learned it was a software failure. Yeah, and there was no communications at all, and the the place was in panic. It was incredible. And um, you had to, you know, everyone was, it was all word of mouth because we had no lights, no TVs, no radios, no anything. Cell phones were down and uh, everyone was in panic, of course. We've got to, and this is actually, so the entire military has to take this into account. And of course, there are very bright people looking at this and saying, well, what happens if and how do we carry on operating? How do we maintain combat effectiveness? Mm. Um, Well, we've got to look at that from a support perspective as well. So we have to, we, we should be looking at support assuming that the comms are going to get turned off. Or, um, uh, probably best case, is that if there is comms, it's very limited. And the bandwidth available for, for ordering spare parts and, and all that sort of stuff is going to be limited. It's going to be very, very limited. And you're probably going to be quite a long way down the priority list. There's going to be more important things to do, like you know, targeting uh, fires and stuff like that. Sure. So so we, we, we should be assuming that these, these things are going to go. We should be assuming that lines of communication are going to be cut. We should be assuming that we are going to lose a wagon full of spare parts. Um, this, is, this is almost, it's not um, a, a, a possibility if you're in a peer-to-peer warfare. It's almost a flying dead cert. Mm-hmm. Um, and we should still be able to operate under those conditions. I think, wasn't it wasn't it Op Granby 1 that we were both involved with? I think, wasn't it, they, they were, and you can correct me because you you'll, be, you'll know more than me about this, is that I think when we took the aircraft down to the sandy deserts, they actually didn't realise how bad the sand was going to affect, like, the links. You know, the, the, the life cycle of the blades, for example, were dramatically, the main rotor blades were dramatically reduced. Um, there was a lot e- of issues like that, from the, the well-known ones about air filters on warriors, I think it was, you know, getting blocked and people had to, you know, do something super technical, like take them out and bash them on the side of the vehicle. Yeah. Um, uh, yes, rotor blades obviously get worn. But again, this this is a lack of, um, from a support perspective, it's very important. What we're not doing is we're not looking at um, the operational environment when we're looking at our bit of kit. Now, some of you will have heard me go on about this before. A helicopter is a good example. You put a helicopter on the back of a frigate and there are certain things about being on the back of a frigate it's not going to like mm. if you put it in the Gulf. It's warm, it's wet, it's salty. Yep. So if you've got things made out of aluminium alloy of some shape or form you're going to have to look after that really really quite closely so structures are going to suffer quite badly in that sort of environment especially if they're dry jointed structures for example however rotary parts are probably going to be quite reasonably happy with some reasonable precautions you know you you wash them down occasionally to get the salt off you know you keep them lubricated and all that sort of stuff rotary parts are going to be happy take the same aircraft and anything, any bit of kit really applies to it. But take an aircraft, take the same aircraft, put it into the desert now. And now all of a sudden things change. So all of a sudden now things that go round and round with that really dry, you've got, the, you've got two types, you've got the very fine gritty sand um, and you've got this very fine talc powder sand mm. that gets into everything and 
packs electronics because the fans suck cool air in and dust and pack it into the electronics. Um, you've got, um, uh, yeah, so basically, yeah, going round and round wears, rotor blades, you know, wear out tremendously fast. Any seals, gearboxes, uh, bearings and so on suffer badly. Structures, however, that aluminium structure, which would suffer on the back of a frigate with warm salty water, doesn't really care. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not getting sandblasted by the, the rotor blades. It's going to be reasonably comfortable in that sort of environment. So do we take that into account when we're looking at what spares we need, what maintenance we're going to carry out, the frequency of maintenance, how often we do on condition maintenance? Uh, and the answer is mm, not really. We, we add some extra tasks sometimes, depending on what environment we're in. You know, if we're in a freezing environment, we'll have mm. extra tasks. Um, if we're in a really hot environment, we might add some extra tasks. But we don't really change the frequency of tasks and so on. We don't, we don't think about the resources required, uh, the extra resources that might be required to do that, which is kind of insane, really, if you think about it. I was operating in the north. Uh, when I was with 3 Commander, we used to go and invade Norway every year and stop the Russians from coming <laughs> in through Finland um, and across the top at, uh, at North Cape there. Um, you know, the, the, that's a completely different environment and requires different sort of maintenance than operating in the desert conditions. Sure, absolutely. So, you know, again, it's, this is about going to the end point We've got to fight a war in the desert, or maybe in the Arctic. Um, so are we prepared for both those contingencies? Yeah. Um, so, so I guess really um, that's what you're all about. You're helping people understand those processes. You train people. You consult for people. You you let them know how to make all of that happen. Um, and part of TDW Live is that we we're part we're parting you both you and I part with some of our knowledge and our know-how. So I asked you. Um, and we'll over the next few weeks we'll publish more about what it is we're actually going to talk about at TDW yep. Live. Yep. Uh, I know that we've got some invites out to some speakers and and all those kind of things. Um, so I guess I asked you to to jot down um, some topics for discussion for this podcast around support engineering, and um, and you you wrote quite an interesting piece that I've that I've been reading through, and um, a lot of it is obviously a lack of understanding, lack of knowledge. Yep. Um, but the first interesting point you put down was um, the the fear of innovation and, and lack of development. What is it you, you, what do you mean by the fear of innovation? Because if we look at, from the tech pubs perspective, I'm getting more and more involved now with people talking about how they can take their technical information to the next level. They see the, they see the value in the information. In fact, over the years, we've seen a market trend of where tech pubs has been an afterthought. Tech pubs has been something that we will do it and we'll do it quickly, we'll do it dirty. But what I'm seeing now, more in the commercial sector, is how people are actually seeing the value in their content and seeing, but not seeing the value in the content as a traditional, here's a maintenance manual, but how that information is being used, where it's being used, by the type of people it's being used by, how it's being accessed, how often it's being accessed. And, you know, that's one of the things I'm going to talk about at TDW Live this year is beyond the actual technical manual and and what is it that we can actually um, get beyond just giving somebody, enabling somebody to do a maintenance task. Um, So part of that is obviously how do we adopt innovative ways of, creation deployment um, analysis and so that's one of the things that i'm going to look at but i'll be interested to hear your your perspective on fear of innovation and and lack of development because you mentioned a couple of things in here which made me laugh because you're talking about stuff that's 
actually not innovative anymore. It's been around for a very long time. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. Um, so, yeah, maybe give me your thoughts on on some of that. No, well, I think it is. It's a, it's a huge problem and very frustrating, of course, if you're a bit of a, um, uh, a techno geek, which I think, you know, I am, but Mike's even more so. Um, but, you know, well, take the tech docs one for a start. You said most of this is going in the commercial world. You know, augmented reality, it's still maturing. You know, yeah, absolutely maturing. it is, but people but, are taking it seriously but, now. But how many... How many um, serious applications or attempt applications have you seen actually on a piece of defense equipment for augmented reality? I would, I mean, I'll bow to your greater judgment, but I suspect not that many. Uh, even you say some of the technology, which is actually now quite robust, it's not innovative anymore. So putting manipulatable 3D images into tech pubs is one I banged on about with your seminars in the past. People have been doing this for years now. It's perfectly possible to do that. It's dead easy. It's really only just starting to happen now in the defense sector, which is kind of crazy because it's been easy to do for a long time um you know so you you find this sort of reluctance to, to move quickly uh we talk about you know internet of things there's, there's huge potential with the internet of things now um so one of the things you were laughing at was that you was rfids sure how much are rfids radio frequency identification um, devices used in the defense sector and the answer is not a lot and they've got huge potential um and you've got this fear you hear stories you hear people saying look i've heard this um, oh, you can't use RFIDs near aircraft because, you know, you've got this RF thing which transmits RF and it could be dangerous because you've got weapons on the aircraft. Because my response to that is, well, if you can set off the weapons on an aircraft by using an RF scanner, you're buggered. I'll, te I'll text the aircraft and set it off myself. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's it. I mean, the, the Russians would be jumping up and down with glee, wouldn't they? Because all yeah. they've got to do is give you a quick scan with something. Yeah, all your, so so all I guess that's where your fear things comes from. Uh, is Because we, yeah. uh, I mean, with, in the... In the um, in the nicest possible way, and and the and the with the utmost respect, and I'm one of these guys, is that technical publications is a second career for a lot of people, and they know what they like and they like what they know, mm. and they've done things in a certain way for a very oh, long time, and um, and there's this perception in some areas that tech pubs is not important. I was with a major aerospace client this week. And we were talking about the process of producing good quality technical publications. And um, one of the managers in the room actually said, oh, so it's much more than just a simple PDF then. And, and you know, yeah. and, and it is absolutely way more than a simple PDF. Um, so I guess that's where a lot of the fear comes from around this stuff. Think, lack of under, understanding. I think, yeah, it's that fear, um, lack of innovation and lack of understanding. They're all tied together, I think, um, in part. Um, the fear comes from a lack of understanding. People sure. don't want to do things Absolutely. that they don't understand. I mean, the importance of tech docs. I mean, it, it's it's mind-boggling, really, that this in this day and age, people can say they don't understand the importance of tech docs. Now, quite a few few years ago, I'm thinking how long ago, maybe four or five years ago, I went to see the Remy Chief Aircraft Engineer and the Remy Chief Engineer down at, well, they're still at Arborfield, so I don't know how long ago that was. Um, and they said at the time that every single um, safety uh, uh incident uh, and the report into every single safety incident they'd had in the next next number of years referenced tech pubs as, as a causal factor yeah so so first of all safety implications are blindingly obvious um the other one is is as you've seen you've got figures and i've seen figures where really good tech pubs have reduced maintenance times by 30 40 50 percent absolutely you know and that and you just look at that and you go well just think of the cost of the maintenance you've just saved but even bigger than that if we're in our business the availability of an asset 
Mm-hmm. Let's take the extreme, an F-35, you know, let's go go for the... Well, and that's been in the news a lot, really, uh, recently, about yeah. supportability and some of the problems it's had. Huge number of problems. So, yeah. you know, you improve the maintenance on that and you can get, you know, you can get a few percentage points of availability. What's the interest rate on 100 million quid for well, an hour? Probably more than I can afford. It's a lot of money. And that's essentially the way you've got to look at it. If that aircraft is required and you can't use it because you're maintaining it... Um, Then that's that's insane. How much can you afford to invest to actually get the damn thing in the air? If you can reduce maintenance time on ten percent of the tasks by fifty percent, what's that worth? And the answer is vast, vast sums of money. So you know, to, to people to not to understand the importance of tech pubs is just barking. Yeah, and I, I certainly, certainly in the commercial sector now, um, I, I'm seeing a huge shift towards hang on a minute, this is actually valuable information. Mm. Um, and, and like I say, deeper than the tech pub itself. And, yeah. and you know, so I, I, uh, without giving too much away what I want to talk about at TDW Live this year, there's a major publishing outlet um, that gave a really interesting interview on the TV on Sky News. I think it was last week or the week before. And they were talking about where their revenues are coming from. And they're a huge publisher and they publish all sorts of content. Uh, but 8% of their revenue only comes from printed output. Yeah, The remainder is digital assets, but analytics of that digital accessing of content. Yep. And that's where the remainder of their revenues is coming from. So... If we're not exploiting that with our tech pubs and with our technical information, um, I think we're doing ourselves a massive um, disservice. Uh, and, you know, but but tech pubs, I get excited about tech pubs. People laugh at me because I get excited about it. But I get excited about the process of tech pubs. You know, what is it we can actually achieve with this? Most people can write a good instruction and, and get somebody to do something. But the processes behind it, the tools that we use behind it, what can we achieve from all of, you know, analysing who's doing these processes, um, which is which is far more interesting and, and far more engaging. So I think you're right in terms of uh, um, fear. Fear is a big one. You know, it, it's a... Um, I was with, I've been lucky enough over the last few months to support some pretty major organisations. And because they're a big organisation, I'll mention them, and that's NATO. They are looking at how they can leverage these these clever ways of doing things with content, yep. and um, you know, and and then I look at other organisations where they're just happy with the way things are. They're quite happy with their their word files converted to PDF, um, and you know, there you go, engineer, go do your go do your worst. Um, but we can give things in a much more efficient way. But there is, and you say there's there's value you can leverage out of this. You know, I mean, again, one of the things I've banged on about quite a lot is. You know, when's a tech pub not a tech pub? You know, same argument you're making, yep. I think. Um, it can become a training aid, you know, especially with modern electronic publications and you embed video and audio and interactivity and all this sort of stuff. All of a sudden, you've transformed it. Um, and this has a knock on effect then. You know, we've got, if you can start to enable the technicians in the military to do things that they are presently they're not allowed to do mm-hmm. uh, and to do that safely and competently, then you get a second effect, which is they stop leaving the services. You know, we've got a huge problem with recruitment and retention of the technical trades. Well, I think I think to underpin what you just said there, I, I do. I am on social media. I'm on Facebook, and I follow a lot of Remy forums. Yeah, yeah. And um, we won't name the company name, but a, la- a very large um, UK defence contractor 
had um, they were recruiting for a vehicle mechanic, sort of level two, level three kind of vehicle vehicle mechanic. So not somebody um, s- terribly senior, and they were willing to pay fifty five thousand pounds a year for a guy. And this and this young guy chirped up and said, "Hang on a minute." So I'm a corporal in the British Army doing exactly the same job, being paid half what yeah. what they're willing to pay me. In in so skills retention is a problem because yeah. of those kind of challenges that we have, and I know that they've just had a massive pay rise, and um, but I don't think it's as big as you know almost fifty percent more than what they could earn in in Civvy Street. Yeah. But um, but so you're right, retention's a problem. It's a huge problem, but it's not just about the wages. I mean, it's a factor, obviously. You know, you can't you can't pay people half the going rate in Civvy Street and expect to to get to get a good result um, and to retain people. But it's also about job satisfaction. Yep. You know, I talked to a guy who just left the navy, who was, um, and he'd been a uh, chief engineer. Or I don't know what the proper term is, but on a Type Forty Five, and he said part of the problem is is that the guys have got the same messing about as we used to have in my day. Says, yep. But they're um, they don't go anywhere very exciting very often nowadays. Um, and uh, they're not really allowed to fix anything, so they they it feels worse because they're not getting the job satisfaction. So basically, getting all the downsides of being in the military, and of course there are downsides, but without many of the upsides, and, and the frustration is driving them to the point where they're just leaving. Uh, yeah. So they're having a huge problem retaining people. So actually treating the people well, accepting the fact they're perfectly capable of fixing this kit and letting them fix it, um, is not only uh, good for retention. Uh, if you're stuffed on the uh, in the South Atlantic somewhere. Um, a long way from many lines of lines of um, uh, communication, any lines of supply, uh, you need guys on board the ship who can fix stuff. You don't want to be calling in a contractor or having to sail back to the nearest port so you can get your your, your engine fixed and so on and so forth. You need guys there who can do it. Um, and the then way you're going to get that. Yeah. They, well, they need the skills, but also you need the right cultural thing as well. You need that culture that says they're allowed to do this. Um, and they're expected to do this. They're expected to find out how to do things. And they're expected to, to perhaps try and do a task they've never done before. Because it needs to be done, mm-hmm. um, and again, the tech docs, uh, electronic tech docs, and the electronic training capabilities, all all tie into that. Because if you give them that support, they're more likely to be able to do that and to be able to do it effectively. You know, but again, I go with you with tech docs. I mean, there's huge potential, but it's moved incredibly slowly. Mm. I remember when I still worked for Beer Systems, we went out to Lean Shopping in Sweden and looked at some stuff Saab were doing. It was light years. It's, it's, it's a, it was ahead of some of the stuff I see today. And that was 20-odd, well, it was 1991, 92, something like that. Yeah, I'd, I've know, been lucky enough this week to um, <coughs> to be introduced to um, to a couple of major players in the commercial air sector. And they showed me some of the systems that they're using in terms of deploying content to their customers, their MROs, or their or to the airlines, or, or any along anything along those lines. And... Um, it's stuff that that was being talked about five, ten years ago. They're actually doing now. They're actually mm. deploying it, and they're actually able to control who access, has access to their information. And yep. um, you know, they can block people. But I mean, one of the things I said is, look, if somebody's going to steal your data, they're going to steal your data. Yeah. And you know, we before we before we turned the cameras on, we were talking about, you know, how often our networks are being hit by. Mm by say not not not, not so friendly people um who want to try and break in but um but they're taking all of the uh, you know they're using technology that's available now yep. 
in in a technical publications environment to protect their intellectual property, which is um, something that is huge in the commercial sector. So, um, you, you, I mean, you talk a little bit about lack of understanding, lack of knowledge. Are you talking about ILS processes or are you talking about engineering capability in general or are you talking about a gambit of things? Well, a whole lot. I mean, the ILS process, I think one of my biggest hobby horses is that people say they're doing ILS, you know, and they're not. They're doing tech docs, they're doing spares, uh, spares provisioning and uh, optimization. they're doing um, training, um, uh, but they're doing them all disparately. They're all done separately and that's not ILS. And my argument to people, so look, I said, um, just doing that stuff is not ILS. You know, we did that in the Second World War. For God's sake, Alexander the Great did that. You know, he was a great logistician. You couldn't get, you can't get from Macedonia to India marching your armies unless you're really good at logistics. Mm-hmm. Um, but they weren't doing ILS. Um, ILS is something different. It's this integration of this which gives you this optimization, and we need that because we're dealing with really complex bits of kit today. So the first problem is people have forgotten what ILS is, um, and of course ILS has got a bad reputation over the years for badly implemented programs, and that's part of, part of it as well. ILS is rubbish. You know, can't do that. Can't afford that. Uh, people talk about it being um, a spend to save. I, well, my argument is if it's spend to save, you're doing it wrong. It should be save to save. Mm-hmm. Improved process gives you an improved product. Improved process also reduces cost. So so part of it is the uh, is that ILS. People don't understand ILS anymore. It, it's kind of got lost. But not only ILS, RCM. We've seen people talking about RCM. People in positions of power who think RCM, Reliable Centre Maintenance, is about making things more reliable. It isn't. It's about maintenance. Mm-hmm. Um and that lack of people who've read the title and not much more and and um, then interpolated and basically come to a conclusion about what it is. They haven't read the standards, they haven't read the textbooks and so on. So there's a lot of ignorance like that. There's a lot of basic engineering ignorance as well. Quite, quite, I mean, the word frightening is the right word. It's quite frightening ignorance. I've, I've talked to you, you saw some of the examples I wrote down in my paper. I was brain dumping this. Yeah, yeah. Way. Um, you talk to a reliability engineer who doesn't know what constant failure rate is or what, what uh, um, constant E is, um, exponential, the exponential distribution. They don't know what it is. You don't know what you're talking about. You talk to a, an RCM person who doesn't understand what the PF interval is. Now, again, if you're not an RCM person, you won't know what I'm talking about. But if you're an RCM person and you don't know what the PF interval is, well, you're not an RCM person, quite simply. Um, you, you know, there's, there's a lot of this really basic in, I- ignorance. I talked to a guy who'd been doing ILS for three years um, on, a, on a major project who never heard of, not, not read, never heard of the DEF standard 0 or 60, 600 series standards. Now, they're not the most exciting reading in the world, you know, uh, like the S1000D standards and stuff like that. But if you're in the business, best you read them, mm. best you know what's in them. Absolutely. Because even if you think it's rubbish, you still need to know what's in it so you can tell it's rubbish. You know, you, you, know, you can't disagree with these things unless you've read them. So, um, you know, there are people with this, this quite startling lack, lack of understanding. Um, uh, I say, and, and really quite frightening uh, because of what that can lead to. Um, you know, I talk about failure modes, effects, and criticality analysis for me, for Mika's, and so on. And I also talk about DEMIA, damage modes, effects analysis. Most people haven't a clue what I'm talking about. Um, again, kind of frightening, given the business we're in. You think you do damage modes, effects analysis because, hey, our kit's going to get damaged. Um, so there is there is a uh, a disturbing lack of understanding. And in the world of tech docs, um, XML, I think there's, there's a, an, a, an astonishing lack of understanding of XML. Um, well, you know. I mean, I, I concur with that because obviously a, a great deal of my time is going around educating people on how to use things like S1000D, Ditter, iSpecs, anything along those lines. Before I get anywhere near those specifications or standards... 
I say, well, let's talk about XML and let's talk about how that those standards, those specifications are leveraging XML. It's not the other way around. <laughs> Thank you. And, and, and um, so, so I spend a great deal of time saying, look, this is where it came from. You know, structured languages and XML, and so, well, not XML, but structured languages and SGML, 60s they were talking about this this capability before I was born. Yeah. And, um, you know, and we talk a little bit about the history of where it came from and why it came from and why it's such an important uh, methodology of creating and distributing information. Yeah. And then what role the standards and specifications then play in tailoring it for a specific environment. Uh, but, but I noticed that here you you, you say, because XML is a big hobby horse of mine, I, I like to explain to people what they get from using XML. Yeah. And, and if I say your motivation is to use S1000D to create these wonderful XML um, data modules to publish PDF, your motivations are generally wrong, <laughs> you know, and um, yeah, you're doing things really you're, hard, you're, you're, you, you are asking somebody to build you a ship because you want to cross a canal. You know, it's just you're doing it absolutely wrong. If that analogy worked, I'm not sure. But um, but I notice here you're saying, what can you do about it? You're saying new, better standards yeah. uh, and better information and wider education. Now, I get that. But um, I was involved in a conversation recently where um, somebody said to me, the problem with standards is there's too many to choose from. Yeah. And, and and we've talked in the past, you and I, about yeah. we there needs to be a new clear concise standard both in tech docs and because s1000d has its problems yep. uh, and um and you know you know your standards and specifications way better than i do and um you know and and i'm often asked what's the what's the alternative what's the alternative mike what's the better way of doing things because um without turning this into a tech pubs podcast particularly i talk about the information supply chain and how the information supply chain struggles yep. maintaining things like s1000d and why it's a problem for them and when you talk to the major players they go oh, we didn't actually realize that this was the problem it was causing for these guys yep. and um because they normally have a very blinkered view on their project driven world and um yep. you know so but we won't but I, I find it interesting you're saying new better standards what what do you mean by that well i think again you know the minute a standard gets to a certain size it ceases to become effective um for a start so when, when you when you're implying a standard you know you can't control the world um for a start you know you can't micromanage you standards should be fairly high level um and as generic as you can possibly make them so as detailed as they need to be and not more is probably the simple way to put it um or as complex as they need to be but yeah um uh, and you otherwise you're just gonna you're gonna lock yourself into old technology and so on and other ways of doing things because people will change so the standards need to be fairly high level it's why i bang on all the time about systems and systems engineering so we need to take a systems approach so it's a bit like you you just you give a really good example there you know people do 1000 use all these wonderful xml data modules and then they put they publish a pdf document and you go well what was the point of that um you know because there's a lot faster ways of getting from there to pdf you know, without going around these usually complicated. Unless you're routes. unless you're actually really leveraging the XML in some clever way in the back end, then you know, then if you're just producing PDF, there's well, more got, efficient ways. There are of lots doing of that. more efficient ways of doing it, and you can shortcut that. So basically, I think you know the, the standards need to focus on what you're trying to achieve, and some basic principles of how you're going to achieve it. So you know, using using effective methods of you know getting from A to B in the straightest possible way. 
Um, you know, going back to the really, really old stuff. Remember cows? Yeah, I cows? talk about the cows and the yeah. cows tables cows, on my yeah, great uh, on my train. Use it many times. You know, that's yeah. that's, a, that's still a, it's an old mantra, but it's amazing how often we fail to do that. Um, so you know, you can use XML. Um, you know, if you're doing stuff like we tend to do in the world of logistics, you use databases because we've got so much data, tons of data. We use a formal database. It doesn't always look like a database, but it's a database. Yeah. You know? um, so I'm sure. I mean, I'm not familiar with uh, some of the tech stuff like Adobe FrameMaker, but I'm pretty damn sure if I lifted this cover of Adobe, I'd find a database underneath it. Um, yeah, um, I mean, there's. The, I mean, the, I mean, in in our market now, there are. One of the things I'll talk about at TDW Live this year is some of the COTS tools that are available to make life easier for us in tech docs. And again, if once you get to that basic principles, you go right. You know, this is the this is the, the world as I see it. If it's in a database, I can turn it into XML. Yeah. No if, buts, or maybes about it. If I can turn it into XML, I can transform it into almost anything you want. You can have a PDF. You can have an HTML5. You can have it in Kindle. You can have it in Mobi. You can have anything you damn well want. Pardon my French. Um, you know, but you can. And that's, that's, that's the real power of XML. If the information's in there and it's got some sort of logical structure to it, and I'm not talking about DTDs and things like that. Yeah. I'm talking about something you, know, you can hook into. Yeah, something, something logical. You know, yeah. if you've got a failure mode, it's got to be against a thing. So, you know, you've got to have the thing. You know, the failure mode's got to be related to a thing. If you've got a task related to a failure mode, then, you know, there's a logic to that. There's a logical structure. And if you're following that common sense engineering logic, then you can almost certainly produce the output in any shape or form you want because you can transform it. You can do clever mm. stuff with it. Now, we're not, Aspire is not experts in IT and XML and all that stuff. We, we do it because we had to do it sure. on the side. So to, to get to make things happen. So, you know, if you do that, then you streamline the process. And that's really where the standards should be. They shouldn't be, they shouldn't be going into massive amounts of detail. You know, for example, picking on 1000 as I tend to do occasionally, um, defining what tags are used. I would say, well, if you define what a tag has got to be in XML, have you just stopped it being XML? You yeah, know, and, and I think the, I mean S one thousand D does have its challenges, and 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 I spend a great deal of time explaining the pro. The, I mean, I understand where they're coming from with this with the S one thousand D spec, and um, you know it does get a bad press in a lot of areas. But um, you, the the um, I think as well is you have to understand what's going on behind the process of those particular tags as well. Um, which we recently I, I delivered a, an S one thousand D authoring course for. Um, for a major client as well. And I'm surprised how many authors don't actually know, they know what the tag is, but they don't know what's going on behind the tag, i.e. what's going on, what, what's the thought processes behind the tag? Why is it done in such a That's way? That's the important bit. Yeah, and and um, it, and that comes around to, to your lack of understanding and lack of knowledge about you know supportability engineering. It's yep. the same with, um, it's the same with writing a good, you know, well-structured piece of information. You need to know why you're using a certain element, why you're using a certain attribute, and what why what makes it important. And and um, that's a good point, actually. Yeah, if you talk about standards, that's possibly a good way of verbalizing what, what, what I've got in my mind. Um, what makes a good standard? It tells you um, what to do, why you should be doing it, and somewhat less of the how. Yeah, you know, because um, that's down. Because that's going to change as technology changes in a lot of fields. Um, and different organisations are going to want to do it in slightly different ways. Yeah. So the XML isn't the only thing you can use, of course. There are other things, or things you use with XML and so on, which are popping up all over the place. Now, an XML is evolving, has been evolving fairly rapidly for 
about 10 years at least. Yeah, now. absolutely. And and we talk about this on, on my, my courses is that where it's going and why it's going in a certain way and how it's going to affect how we're producing content today, but how we're deploying it as well today. Yeah. Are we going to need these complex viewers in the future are we going to need these expensive tools in the, the biggest complaint in the s1000d market is the expense of software yeah. and um, and that's a reality you know because it's a niche market and niche markets drives a higher price yeah. and all that kind of stuff but when when we actually take an xml structure we pull it apart and we say look there i deliberately put something that looks very ugly on the screen mm. and and in general i get some a load of oh my gods what is that going to be you know that means nothing to me and i'm going no it does let's mm. break it down yep. and um so we break it down piece by piece mm. and at the end of the course i've never had anybody who doesn't look at a piece of xml and go that's what it's doing i see what it's doing and i know how it's working it's in a one of those things way. which is eminently logical once you get your head around it yeah you know, i mean that's that's the key um but again you know there is an argument um and i'll play devil's advocate here and that is, if you're a tech author, you shouldn't see XML. But you get those authors that absolutely believe that they want to work in XML, which is yep. fine. So, um, you know, I have no problem with the guys that want to do that. Um, and, you know, you get those that just want to work in a, in a Word kind of environment, yeah. which is, you know, it's horses for courses, I think. It is, and again, what you do is, you. I think, um, I'm, I'm not going to have a go at the guys who want to work in XML, because what it means is, if nothing else, is they've, they've learned something. Yeah. They've, 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 to, to do that, you've had to learn and understand, and you've got that profound understanding. But generally, you know, if you're a tech author, you should be concentrating on writing stuff and understanding how to do things. We, we should the, be... The technical bit is a, is a necessary... So, so actually, no. we, we can go full circle here on the discussion that you we, we've had outside of this podcast, but um, how you've also talked to, in this podcast about, are we forgetting about the end user? Are we forgetting about what the end user actually wants? And I go into organizations and I see they're so focused, like a laser, on following the S1000D specification and getting absolutely everything right. And there are reasons why we need to get it right. And there's reasons why. But they're doing it at the um, detriment of the actual content of actually giving the user what they need. Yep. Uh, the biggest complaint I hear about something like S1000D, and we talk about S1000D because it's the player in the, it's the it's the game in town at the yeah, moment. Yeah, yeah. Everyone's talking yeah. about it. And they say, well, I can create modules, but why am I deploying modules? You know, I can create these wonderful data modules, but surely I can make something that's a bit more user-friendly and a bit more useful yes. rather than sending somebody down a paper chain of, getting to module, 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 and then I'm lost. I don't know where I am. Yep. Um, and, of course, the answer is yes. Mm. That's just a bad implementation of publishing the content. Yeah. Um, so so what do you think in terms of – I just want to come back to this point of better standards. I know we've talked about it in the past, about writing our own standards and coming up with a better standard. Um, and I, I still believe that there are better ways of doing things. Mm. Have, have you have you thought about writing your own supportability engineering standard? Or Well, yes, I have. And I've actually sort of started, but I'm doing it at the margin. So what I've been doing is um, I'm, a, I'm a sort of a fan of the ISO 15288 systems engineering You talked standard. about that at the conference last yeah, year, I think. Um, it's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, um, but it's uh, it's probably the best there is out there. It's a good framework, um, and the Americans have taken it. and And there's a, there's a procurement version that you can you can buy. I haven't bought it in very read it yet. I will do, um, and I believe the Canadians are doing the same thing. So they've based their procurement processes on 
15288. Okay. Um, it's got the same problems as us. I mean, it says, oh, you know, there's, there's, if you want to understand configuration, read this standard. And if you want to understand something else, read this standard. And, and you end up with a list of about 15 other standards you've got to go and buy at 109 quid a pop and read. And they're not like reading. Um, so it does have some issues, but it does provide a fairly a good, robust structure. So what I've started doing is going, it's all broken down. I can remember now it's, um, it's basically broken down into processes and then tasks and so on um and i've been going through it basically going right so what does that mean in world in the world of support engineering and i think i've got three three tasks or three processes to, to finish off which i've been finishing off for about two months now to be honest right, okay. um but that's the idea the next idea then is to put that against a sort of generic life cycle so you know it's the cadbury cycle but generous genericized concept system level so on um and actually put it in as a process flow chart because um, i think that's 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 the way to go and then stealing things from existing standards which are good ideas so there's a lot of stuff good stuff in the old lsa standards and the things which have superseded them mm. so those of you who understand lsa and recognize 1388 1a the original lsa process standard you know the s the uh, society of automotive engineers the sae have got a standard can't remember the number of it now which is basically that with a few extra bits put on but it's recognisably uh, the son of yeah. that, that standard. And it's got some good stuff in it. So the idea is you go, right, what's good? Keep that. What's bad? Throw that out. And get some sort of logical structure there that looks at the life cycle and how things are applied in the life cycle. So that, that's that's what I'm um, doing, partly because I think it'll make it easier to train people as well because yep. it'll give a good framework for training and a good framework for people to get the head around this and understand what it's all about. Um, and it does tend to focus, um, as, as I like, on the end game. What, what is the point of this? Where are you going? It's all driven by. Is, is the, right the point of art. to make wonderful XML structures in accordance with a standard or a specification, or is the point that we are trying to make coherent information that we can yeah. deliver to an end user or a series of end users? It's the guy in the in the defence world, um, it's the guy in the green or the blue baggy suit. At the end of the day, who's got something in his hand, be it a piece of paper or a tablet or a mobile phone or a laptop or something, who's got to take that information and do something meaningful. Um, and that's that's the entire focal point. I remember this is, we've had this conversation a while ago, sure. about four years ago, five years ago. I, I I stood up in one of your seminars and said, "Do you realise that every single presentation on the seminar, apart from one, and that was about simplified English, has been about data data manipulation? Not a single not a single person talked about content. Not a single person talked about the end user." Um, what one um, of the big um, one of the things I like to give myself credit for, and and um, and, and some people say I might be a little bit arrogant. I try not to be. Is that a few after I left my employed career to focus on TDW, I, I started this messaging of the end user. Yeah. Don't forget the you and I have been there. We've been the guys on the back of these helicopters at two o'clock in the morning trying to change an engine. Mm. Uh, it's chucking it down with rain, and uh, the pilot needs the aircraft to go in in a few hours. So, um, and and I started the messaging. What about the end user? What about the end user? And then I noticed all over a sudden all these other consultants started talking about what about the end user? What about the end yeah. user? So I don't care particularly that they're doing that. I just think it's important that we do talk about the end user and we talk about where this content is going it's, and um, how it's being used. Without that, you've lost the context. All that other stuff is very important. It's yeah, all absolutely. going to be discussed. It's all going to be addressed. But without the context of it's all about the end user, you're likely to go off in the wrong direction. So you're back to your, let's produce a data module and then, you know, then, then use it to make a PDF document. Um, I'm sure there's an analogy. There's one 
perkin pop out in a minute in the back of my head you know but it is a bit like you know using the computer to chop down a tree type thing you know yeah. it's um it's a really bad analogy but you know I, I could normally come up with ones on the fly, uh, good analogies, but, but um, yeah. it's like putting a nice painting on the wall and turning the painting round towards the wall. You know, yeah, it's, it's like that, that yeah. kind of that. Looking, but looking it's um, plywood on the back, yeah. But I, I think that, um, you know, without doing, you know, we've got to be um, balanced here. And the balance is, is that, you know, we talk about on my training courses, the problems that S1000D is trying to solve. Mm and what the problems XML is trying to solve yep. and how it's solving it. Um, and then it's up to the organisations after that to decide whether it's the solution to their problems. The first thing is understand. The first step is understand. You know, a 1000D, as you, you know, everyone who's heard me speak knows, I'm, it's not my, I'm not a great fan. doesn't mean there's not some really sound principles in there. And certainly XML is, I'm a great fan of XML because of the power that it, things it enables you to do is just tremendous. Um, but you, the, the trick is, is again, with all of these things, you've got to look at them really quite hard. First of all, you've got to ask yourself the question, why did people do this? Mm -hmm. What drove them to this? Now, sometimes it's a, it's a, what you might call a genuine reason. They were trying to solve a real problem for the end user, mm -hmm. ultimately for the end user. Sometimes it's something a lot, a lot worse. It's politics. You know, it's a small political well, thing. Well, I mean, S1000D was solving the real problem of multinational uh, projects yeah. trying to integrate data from multiple suppliers and and having a coherent way of delivering and integrating that content yeah. um, which was whoever came up with the idea all kudos I think it's a great uh, idea uh, and, and they did very very well um, there are things that they got wrong in the specification and are still in the specification that need to be um, yeah. ironed out and, and looked at you know if you compare it I mean we're turning it again into a discussion about S1000D but if you compare it to um, other uh, similar approaches like Ditter. What has Ditter got so right that that you know it makes it so much easier to adopt and it makes it so much easier to use and 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 deploy. Yep. Um, but but I guess because um, we're almost at the hour and I, I I want to try and keep it to an hour if we can. Is that mm. so? Where do you think we're going wrong and what can we do um, in the support information? I know you wrote a great big piece on that, but uh, maybe yeah. <clears throat> synopsize that for us. But because I want to come to the, you quoted some things to me about Penny Mordant, and I and I want to, uh, okay. uh, and and for those of you who don't know who Penny is or, or was, um, she was our defence secretary in the UK um, a, a little while back. Uh, well, a little while back, it was about two weeks ago. I think she was let go. Yeah, she wasn't. Uh, she wasn't there for very long, but no, she was. But I know that you. The right noises. I don't know whether you want to do Penny's quotes first, or do you want to talk about where we're going wrong with? I'll support? just I'll just make some points. I mean, I think the reason I put Penny's points in there was. We're not doing this particularly well. ILS, sports engineering, whatever you call it. It's not working very well. We're not getting good results, you know. And she just, in her maiden speech as Defence Secretary, first speech as Defence Secretary, I'll read, I'll read, she said, you know, there's some common stuff here. What's the point of methodically reviewing threats and tasks, formulating capability, then not delivering it? Um, what's the point of building ships wanting to mothmall them because we've got a lack of crew or a lack of spares or funds? Well, you know, some of that falls into the sphere of sport engineering. One of the things you should be doing, of course, um, this falls into the ISO thing again, the ISO 5288 bit, is what are the constraints you're operating under? There's no point designing a ship you can't man um, unless you've got a plan to address the manning issues. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're, you're just solving part of the problem. You've got, you've got a two-legged stool. You know, if you haven't got the spares, it happens all the time, again and again and again and again. Um, we just don't buy the right spares because people haven't done the spares analysis or if they have done the sparing analysis and someone said too expensive, chop out half of that. Well, again, you, you might as well look, don't buy so many ships, but buy the spares for the ones you've got. 
is my answer, because you're just kidding yourself otherwise. So it, it's an example, really, of um, the, the problems that we've, we've got in the business. And there's the other one about, the, the other point I highlighted here was, what's the point of running old vessels and delaying new ones? She's talking about ships, this, but it applies to airplanes and tanks and stuff as well, um, only to run up massive costs in the process. You know, so bite the bullet, save money now. You know, the classic example, Lee, who's uh, sat downstairs here, uh, wrote an article the other day about the um, nuclear submarines. Yeah, you know, we haven't disposed of a single nuclear submarine in the UK ever. Yeah, we've so stockpiled them somewhere. They're all, they're all stockpiled in Portsmouth. I think it's Portsmouth or Devonport. Or Devonport, and, I think, and, and a couple in Scotland. And up I in think. Scotland as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and you can Google Earth that. That's not us releasing secrets. You, you can, can see go. Them. Yes, you, you can, can go to Google Earth yeah. and you can see them. You can so. look at them. Yeah, they're all sat there. Yeah, um, and uh, one of the early submarines is called Dreadnought, which is what the new submarine they're designing and building at the minute is going to be called. Mm-hmm. And there's a chance that the old Dreadnought is going to be sat aside along the old, the new Dreadnought scrapped if we don't get our sh- and that's costing huge amounts of money so why don't we bite the bullet and if this is a through life cost type thing you know bite the bullet get rid of it save the money and now start spending the money on stuff we need yep. we do need the money so that was just making a point that um at the high level and there's lots and lots and lots of stories about how things are going wrong so we can do better we we have to do better so that, that that's that one the information one question though um, what can we do better on information we're not really doing information management very well at all you know we're still sending uh, on major projects where you're a supplier supplying a prime you know, you're sending information in in spreadsheets yep. and stuff like this and you go for heaven's sake guys you know this is really bad the LSARs people are still buying and using today are based on technology I, I'm trying to think when the mill standard 1388 2B standard was published um, and there are iterations of that. There's a there's an SAE standard which has followed on from it, and so on and so forth. But they're pretty much the same. We're talking about really old relational database technology here, um, mm-hmm. and we wouldn't build databases like this today. We wouldn't specify them like it. But we're still using them, um, and some projects are still using the precursor to that, which is a flat file hierarchical database, which is kind of imagine a lot of spreadsheets. Um, it's kind of terrifying. So, and we haven't really developed very much. There's nothing particularly sophisticated about these these support databases um so we haven't moved on now the other day you know just to give you an idea of the art of the possible i had to take on board a new accounting package mm-hmm. uh, zero for anybody who's interested um it's an online cloud-based accounting package i think um, claire i think claire uses quickbooks i think she's they're quickbooks the same sort of thing because yeah. nowadays of course if you put your vat return and you've got to do what they call making tax digital you've got to do it online you can't send a thing you can't. it's all the big thing it's the latest gdpr isn't it yeah. everyone was Jumping up and down about GDPR, and now it's tax online. It's tax. So, so what you do is you basically you, you do your accounts. It talks to your bank, mm-hmm. downloads your statement, puts it in your accounting package. So there's a link to your bank, and it does that. You just go down, then you reconcile it all. And when you do your tax, you go submit back return to the taxman. Done. It's all done. Now that's twenty two quid a month. And by the way, that'll all be XML going on in the background. Oh yeah, it is. It's um, no, so, uh, almost uh, certainly. Um, so you look at that and you go, okay, the market for that is massive, you know, but that's the that's the art of the possible today. Mm-hmm. So why have we got thousands very often of suppliers sending stuff in in spreadsheets so that somebody can then try and consolidate it into some, import it into some bigger database at the, at the prime contractors, for example. They say exactly, um, why are we um, not producing uh, our outputs using XML and XSLT and stuff like that from our core databases. Um, you know, why aren't we producing data modules um, straight from the analysis? If we're doing maintenance task analysis, why don't we get it to as near as damn camera ready, Moby ready, Kindle ready, whatever you want to call it, ready um, outputs straight from our, our tools, our supportability tools. Mm. There's no reason why we 
it shouldn't. Um, I know we can do it because we've done it. Uh, then some people are trying. You know, <coughs> yep. some people do take the task narratives directly from... There are people working in that direction, uh, yeah. Yeah, so there are people that, that... And there are software tools that will support that as well, allow you to take, um, extract information from, like, for example, a 1388... Yep drag it into an S1000D module environment. And then, yep. the, the, I mean, the challenges around that is that engineers are not often writers and, and writers need to come in and tidy up what well, the engineers Well, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's another hobby horse of mine, you see. And again, it's one of the problems that goes back to the idea of standards. You know, so a friend of mine once said, if you've got five disparate standards and you want to write one coherent standard to replace them, you'll end up with six disparate standards. Exactly. <laughs> um, and, and that's part of the problem that's going on. What we, what we shouldn't be doing is shifting it from there to there to process it and so on. We should have one editable version of the truth. The rest of it should be manipulation as in terms of, you know, the, the mechanics of things. But basically you want one editable version of the truth and that's the only version that should exist. There's no reason why we shouldn't achieve that today. Um, and what part of the problem is you get these parallel paths. So we talked to another very large uh, prime contractor and they said, well, we want to take RCM data, we want to put it into our LSIR, but we also want to put it into, and they had, I can't remember, the, there was two streams. One was Adobe FrameMaker, I think, and there was something else they were using for TechPubs as well. And they wanted to put different bits, and they wanted to add these two streams. So they had RCM into LSAR, RCM data into these two streams of tech pumps, which would then eventually come out um, you know, with, with some sort of result that would then deliver to the, to mm -hmm. the customer. And you just look at it and go, well, you know, no, this is not right. This is, this is not the way to do it, guys. Um, but also going back to your point, the, sorry, you said you've got an engineer who's written this task description. Well, why? Why is he doing it? It's not his job. That's the tech author's job. So, but I think in the, I mean, from my experience of working in the in, in this area, that those that are using things like 1388 2B, the engineer will write a bit of a, you need to do this, you need to do that, you need to do that, and then the author will take that and write a nice, pretty data. Well, what module. they do is, you're right, so what happens, mm. what you very often have is this thing they called an LSA engineer. Well, yeah. in my, my world, there is no LSA engineer. They don't exist. Um, they uh, You might have somebody on the sun's LSA, an LSA manager, an LSA expert, but... You don't have an LSA engineer. You, the guy who writes the task description, once you've identified, somebody does identifies the task by doing Famica and RCM, right? So you have some specialists who do that. And then you have a specialist who writes the task analysis because they're called tech authors as far as I'm concerned because mm -hmm. that's what they do. And if you want someone to look at what spares are required, then you get the provisioning expert in and they do that. The fact that it's all in one database called an LSAR doesn't matter diddly. Um, actually, you should have the experts doing it. That was the idea behind LSA in the past it's not that you have this it's an extra thing and typically of course what you find is those lsa engineers they don't write a very just a very thin document they write quite a detailed document when they're doing task analysis which they then with, with all the errors and all the rest of it pass over to the tech authors who then take it away into another package and manipulate it and fix it they don't fix it in the lsar they take it out and do something else with it so now you've got two versions of this yeah you've got the you've got the raw straight from the engineer's mind yeah. into the database and then you've got the pristine inner csdb as we call yeah. it in the s1000d environment now, some people will feed that back in and um, some people do try to connect the two environments yeah. as well so yeah. if something changes over here it'll say in here you need to go change it it doesn't um, uh, but not always the case so some people obviously are doing the right thing but a lot of yeah. people aren't so you end up with this disparate you end up with these different versions of the truth all over the place and of course as soon as you've got that you've got you've got configuration control problems you're going to end up with divergence between different versions and so on and so forth so you know because the guy who takes the, the, the tech author let's just take the worst case take it out manipulates it makes it into proper tech tech author in language and so it's suitable for and that goes off and does something but the guy's still using the lsar now 
and he's doing those identifying spares and tools and test equipment and all the rest of it on that. Now, you know, if something's changed in that tech-authored version because he's spotted some errors and he's corrected it and he's maybe gone and looked at the actual bit of kit, he's looked at somebody actually doing a maintenance task and he's changed it. Mm-hmm. Well, unless that goes back into the the original, the LSAR source, you've got you've got a problem. You're in divergence, and you know this this is the sort of thing you go. Well, this happens. There's no if, what's and maybe's about it. Yeah, that happens. It's the reality um, of the world. Um, but why is the question? I, the thing I can't understand is with with the modern technology we've got today, and it's it's relative. I stress the word relative. Now it's relatively easy to create a quite a sophisticated database based tool set nowadays with modern tools and technology. You still need some bright guys. You can coding and all that sort of stuff but you know we, we we don't seem to be doing that we make it we're making it really really quite hard mm-hmm. so we should have been able to produce a really slick um support working environment now that everyone can dip into um and streamline this process uh and, and that's the information bit that underpins it all and i think very often um you know understanding that information piece also makes you start to understand where there are um discrepancies or, or different duplicated effort in different disciplines again going back to the tech docs and training one because it's an easy one to pick on sure you know um you look at it it's the same information training is to make a maintainer able to do his job tech pubs is to make a maintainer able to do his job you know uh, uh, leaving aside the extra bits which you've talked about mm-hmm. so it's the same thing so it should be there should be a lot of it should be core i'm not saying all of it because there will be differences but a lot of it should be core um and it's not we end up with diversions, um, and of course, you, you end up then with training doesn't match the tech pumps and, and so on and so forth. And it costs you more, it costs you more to do it badly than it should to do it properly. So, I, I, I struggle with now why why we don't have better information systems in this day and age. Yeah, I mean, and I think there is, in my personal view, there's room for some innovation in this market. Um, in, in when I see all the disparate systems and I see how ha, how they all work, I believe that there is room for some innovation. Um, I'll be going to the S one thousand user forum later on this year in um, in London. They're holding it in London yeah. this year, and I'll be going along. And um, the first thing I'll be looking for is which companies are actually trying to push the envelope in this market and not not just doing the same old same old. Who are the guys that are actually doing something a little bit more? Um, interesting for us uh, in terms of how can we really enable our end users and um and our and our well i think content. part of that is people again there's this this education which is why i put this education and, and understanding i i was training a fairly large middle tier sort of defense contractor so not not a ba systems you know but sort of next level down um mm. in europe and as part of it they said well we haven't got a logistics database we haven't got an lsr should we buy one i said no make one Build it yourself. Now, immediate response was, "We're not big enough." You know, you know, you're looking. This is quite. I hear, I hear that a lot around LSA. I hear that a lot. A lot of people will go, uh, "We're not big enough. We can't afford that kind of infrastructure. We can't yeah. afford that process. We can't afford that uh, investment in uh, in that stuff." So that's a that's a that's a mis- misperception. Yeah, and I think that's a, maybe a topic for another podcast. We could certainly that's talk about that. <laughs> we have certainly gone um, an hour and ten minutes here, which I think is. Um, I know you and I can talk for hours and hours on these subjects, and we have done in the past. Yeah, we their, d- we their tolerance isn't allowed. Th- maybe their tolerance <laughs> isn't as much as ours. But, um, you know, Peter, thank you very much. How do people get hold of you? You're on LinkedIn. 
I'm on LinkedIn. They can find our website. Um, AspireCL.co.uk. And, um, .co.uk, that's right, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I'll put it all in the show notes. So if anybody wants to connect with Peter Direct, um, we, we would like to know your thoughts on this podcast. And um, do, do challenge us what we're saying, and yes, um, we, you know, we'd be more than happy to um, debate and discuss. Um, tell us what your challenges are around uh, things like using, um, you know, any of these standards or specifications that we've mentioned today. And um, I hope you found this podcast useful and interesting. It just leads me to say to Peter, um, again, thank you very much. I think it went much, much smoother than what we originally <laughs> anticipated because we actually, uh, we got into our rhythm very, very quickly, which is, um, yeah, it is kind of exa- exemplifies that we've done this a few times in the past, <laughs> chewing the cud here uh, about these standards and specifications. So if you want to meet Peter in person, uh, do please uh Come along to TDW Live this year, where Peter will be doing some um, some some of this stuff in much much more detail at the conference. And um, he always likes a nice drink, so you'll be able to buy him a drink, and he'll he'll help you get on the uh, the right track with this stuff. So um, until the next podcast, uh, again, Peter, thank you very much. Um, do you want to say goodbye to everybody? Um, we'll do the next one. Yeah, I'll just reiterate one thing, and that is if you don't agree, by all means don't agree, argue. We, we don't have enough discussion in this business. Come back and, and tell me I'm talking nonsense. Rubbish. But thanks anyway. Thanks all. Brilliant. Cheers, guys, and uh, until the next one. Thank you for listening to the TDW Podcast. Remember, you can keep your tech data skills current and relevant with a full TDIQ subscription. Visit www.techdataworld.com for more details. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube for your next Tech Data World update. Until next time.